Scripture read this morning is going to come from Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will, will, will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many, uh, many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's good to see you this morning. I, um, as I mentioned last Sunday night, uh, I've, I spent the last week or so in uh, Austin teaching at the School of Preaching there. Um, Alex and Laura Lee Simmons were in my class all day long, every day for five days. You need to pray for them. But I'm sure you will not be surprised to hear that Alex and Laura Lee are both doing fantastic and they are both among their top of their class as students. Um, they're a joy to be around as they always have been. And uh, I'm really, really excited about the future for them, about what God can do with them. Uh, and, and they're learning just, um, just a ton of, of uh, information from God's word, learning about character and what it means to serve the Lord. Um, keep Alex and Laura Lee in your prayers. Uh, of course, you know, Alex is going to be married in uh, just a little under two weeks, uh, and he and his bride-to-be are both uh, students there at the school, and um, uh, just, a, just a sweet couple. I know that God's going to bless them, and uh, be praying for him as he makes that transition as well. Um, also wanted to mention that Anthony Scherfus, who was an intern here at Katy, um, I guess three years ago, two years ago, Seems like it was 2020, it was three, three years ago. Uh, Anthony has gotten married, if you weren't aware. Uh, he's, um, he and his wife just had their first baby just two days ago. And uh, so Anthony is a father now and I'm excited for him. And if you're a friend of his on Facebook or text message or however you communicate, uh, you might just wish him and Haley, his wife, well. And uh, their baby boy was born, he's healthy and um, really excited for them. I would be lying to you if I said I wasn't a little bit tired this morning, even, even, uh, even as I stand here, but uh, I'm excited to be with you this morning. And the best thing about this morning is that we get to worship God together, that we get to honor and praise his name, and that we get to lift up our voices in song to him, and that we get to hear from his word. And so let's do that at this time. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 7, if you haven't already done so, and look at verses 21 through 23. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Jesus, as he concludes the Sermon on the Mount, says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Only he who does the will of my Father in heaven will enter. And then I want you to look at verse 22. Many will say to me on that day. And I just think that's interesting. There's a day coming, brothers and sisters and friends, when we're going to meet our maker, when we're going to be before the God of all the earth. And it appears from this passage that we're going to have an opportunity to say some things. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, didn't we prophesy and cast out demons and do many mighty works in your name? And I will say to them, Jesus says, depart from me, you never knew, I never knew you. 
but it appears to me that at least, for, at least for a brief moment in time that God and I will have a conversation and that Jesus and you will have a conversation on that day. At least that's the implication of these words because Jesus says in Matthew 7, many will say to me on that day, won't they? Maybe they all speak together, but it seems that on the day of judgment, we're going to have the opportunity to say what we want to say to God. I'd like for us to think for just a few minutes this morning about what we should not say. It might be a good study for you personally to think about what you would say. If you met God, if you were standing before him and this was your judgment, this was your eternal sentencing time. If you were to stand before him, what would be the right thing to say? That's a study in and of itself. But I wanna warn you this morning There are some things that nobody can legitimately say on the day of judgment. Seven, to be be precise. Seven things not to say to God on the day of judgment. As we prepare to meet our maker, as we prepare to meet the Lord, Amos chapter four, verse 12, what should we not say on judgment day? Number one, God, you were not clear about what you wanted from me. You were unclear. You didn't tell me what I needed to do to be saved. You didn't tell me clearly how I was supposed to conduct myself as a man, as a woman, as a child. You didn't tell me clearly enough, God, about how you wanted me to worship you. Do not say those kinds of things to God on the day of judgment. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, Peter makes reference to the fact that some of the things that Paul wrote were difficult, hard to understand. And indeed, there are some passages in Scripture, brothers and sisters and friends, that are more challenging. It doesn't mean that they are impossible to understand, but they are more difficult for us to understand. But brothers and sisters and friends, when we start talking about questions like, what must a person do to be in a right relationship with God? Or questions like, what does the church that belongs to Jesus look like? Or we talk about questions like, what does it mean to live a moral and upright life that pleases God? God is is not unclear about the answers to any of those questions. For example, take salvation. John 3:16, whoever believes in Jesus should not perish but have eternal life. What does God want from you? He wants you to believe in his son, Jesus Christ. Put your faith and your trust in him. In Romans 10 verses 9 and 10, what does God want from you? He wants you to confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is the son of God, that he is the Messiah. Confess with your mouth that he's the Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. What does God desire from us? To believe in the Lord Jesus, to confess him with our mouths. What does God desire of us? Acts chapter two and verse 38. The Bible says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for, for the purpose of the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now the question is, well, how come he says one thing in one passage and another thing in another passage? You have to read the context to understand. Well, what God wants us to do is to read his word, Matthew through Revelation, the New Testament, and answer the question, what must I do to be saved? And you could just take those passages I've shown you and you can look at all the rest of what the New Testament has to say. This is how God wants people to come to him. Believe in Jesus Christ, 
confess his name, repent of your sins, be baptized in water for the forgiveness of sins, to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. God could not be, brothers and sisters and friends, more clear. When you come before God on the day of judgment, you cannot legitimately say, Father, you just weren't very clear about what it meant to be saved. There were all these interpretations and all these religious uh, experiences and philosophies and, and I just didn't know which one to believe. Can I give you some practical advice? Don't believe anybody else, believe the word. Don't even believe me if what I'm saying doesn't come from the word. Don't believe anybody, just believe what the Bible says. God has made himself clear about how someone can be saved. Don't say on the day of judgment, God, you were not clear. Next, on the day of judgment number two, do not stand before God and say, what about all those other people over there, God? They were more wicked than I was. On the day of judgment, criminals, thieves, insurrectionists, all manner of wicked people will stand before God. The most famous thieves and criminals and murderers and insurrectionists and dictators and rulers and leaders of nations of all the ages, they will be present on that day. And you cannot stand before God and look at someone like Adolf Hitler, who was a terrible, wicked individual by everyone's account. You cannot look at someone like that and say, well, aren't I doing better than him? Wasn't I more righteous than him? I lived a moral life, you might say. I lived a life and I tried to be a good person, a good citizen. I tried to raise a family and bless them. You cannot stand before God and say, other people were more wicked than I am. Therefore, I ought to be saved. Salvation does not come that way, brothers and sisters and friends. You know what the Bible says about this? 2 Corinthians 10 verse 12, read it with me. Just read along silently. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, Paul writes, but when they measure themselves, watch this, by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Another translation says they are not wise. And what that means for you and me is there is no profit and there is no wisdom in looking at other people and comparing myself spiritually to them. Well, I think I'm doing better than brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so. I think that I'm living a more moral life than so-and-so over there. You are without understanding if that's the way you're comparing yourself to others. You know why people are lost? We're lost because of one small three-letter word, S-I-N. We are lost because of sin. And whether you have sinned once or whether you have sinned grievously over and over and over, sin is what condemns us. Romans 6 verse 23, the wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life, but watch where it is. It is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why you must believe him. That's why you must put your faith and confess him as Lord, because that's the way that you obtain the free gift of life, by believing and obeying his word. Because the only other solution, the only other answer or option for your life, the wages of sin is death, condemnation, eternal destruction. 
In Luke 18, verse 13, Jesus spoke about the Pharisee and the tax collector and the Pharisee stood up and he, he said, God, I'm so thankful I'm not, listen to this, I'm so thankful I'm not like other men. You remember that? I'm so much better than other men, the Pharisee said. And he told God how good he was and all the great things he had done. And then Jesus says in Luke 18, 13, the tax collector stood afar off, would not even so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That is the attitude God wants in every one of us. God doesn't need us to tell him how great we are. God wants us to tell him, truthfully about the sin in our lives. Confess your sin and God is faithful and just to forgive your sin. First John chapter one, verse nine. Don't say, God, I was less wicked than somebody else on the day of judgment. Third, many will say to me on that day, Jesus says, what should you not say to him on that day? God, I lived my life and I just merely followed the people that I loved and respected. I followed a religious leader that everybody thought was a great teacher. I followed someone who cared about me and invested in me. I followed my parents or I followed someone that, that raised me and helped to shape the person that I became and they taught me about spiritual things and I just listened to them. I just did what they told me to do. You and I need to be careful who we follow. There are some wonderful people in our lives. There are some wonderful people that we will come across in this life, but be careful who you follow. An old restoration preacher said it this way, do not follow someone who's never been to heaven because somebody who's never been to heaven does not know the way. I think that's great advice. Jesus Christ is the only person who ever made the round trip from heaven to earth and back to heaven. Jesus is the only one, therefore, who knows the way. Don't listen just to people that you love and respect. Listen to Jesus. Follow him. Matthew 15, 14, Jesus warned us. He said, let them alone. They are blind guides, talking about the Pharisee. He said, if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. Be careful that the person you're following is not blind. How do you know whether they are? How do they treat God and his word? How do they respect the scriptures? Again, in Acts 17, verse 11, the Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the word of God with all eagerness. It wasn't about what their favorite person taught them. It was about what does the word say? And they examined the scriptures daily to see whether what they were hearing was true. We need more of that spirit in 2023. We need people to examine the scriptures, to search the Bible and ask, is what I'm hearing true? And if it's not, turn and repent and do what the Bible says. God calls people that do that noble. In John 14, 6, when Jesus talked about who he is, it is an exclusive statement. We would call it narrow-minded if it wasn't true. But Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Don't follow anybody who's never been to heaven. Follow the one who came to save you, to ransom you from your sin, and knows exactly where heaven is and exactly how to get there. Follow him. He's the way, truth, and the life. Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and watch this, follow me. 
I realize there are people in our lives that we care about and that we respect and we esteem highly and they may well have some good things to say about God's word, about spiritual matters. But at the end of the day, the only person we can really follow and be loyal to is Jesus Christ. And we must have some of that attitude in our hearts and our minds if we want to follow him truly. On the day of judgment, when you stand before the Lord, what should you not say? Number four, God, I looked at your people. I looked at those Christians. I looked at those people that were members of the church. And God, some of them, maybe even a bunch of them, appeared to me to be hypocrites. And because they were hypocrites, I decided not to be one. Because if your word wouldn't change them, I I don't want to be a part of that either. When you stand before God on the day of judgment, brothers and sisters and friends, it's not about what anybody else has done. It's not about how anybody else around you is living their life. It's about you. It's about your decision to obey or to disobey God's word. Do not say to God, just because other people were hypocrites in how they lived, that that was a legitimate reason for you not to become a Christian yourself. Romans 14, 12, each of us will give an account of himself to God. I'm thankful for my family. I'm thankful for people that care about me and love me, that I respect and that I appreciate, but nobody in my family is gonna be able to give an answer for me. And I, as much as I would like to, cannot give an answer for anybody that's a member of my family on the day of judgment. I care about all of you sincerely, but I cannot give an answer for you on the day of judgment. I can only give an answer for myself and you cannot answer for me on the day of judgment. You can only answer for yourself. As much as we care about and love one another, we only can give an answer for our own lives. Second Corinthians five, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Are some Christians living hypocritical lives? No doubt that's true. I'm certain it's not the case with you. I pray that it's not the case with you, but it is true that in many places, many Christians live hypocritical lives. They are trying to pull the wool over people's eyes. They have one foot in the church and one foot in the world, and they're not really sure some days whether they wanna just swing both feet over to the world. There are people that live that way and claim to be Christians, but that in and of itself has no effect on your salvation and my salvation because all of us individually must give an account of ourselves to God. Don't let what somebody else is doing discourage you from you doing what's right. Don't live that way. Don't make that kind of decision. And don't say that on the day of judgment. God, other people were hypocrites, so I decided not to be a Christian. What should you not say to Jesus on the day of judgment? God, you did not do enough for me. Look at my life. Look at the mess that my life was. Look at the pain I experienced. Look at the sorrow and the tragedy and the loss that just happened. And look at all that I went through. God, why would I want to obey you? Why would I want to turn my life over to you? It's not enough the way that you treated me. It's not enough. God, you did not do enough for me. I think if people say that, 
They're going to say it out of heartbreak. They're going to say it out of a long history. And I know some people's lives, there's a long history of pain and loss and sorrow. And if that's you, I'm so sorry. But don't say that to God. God, you didn't do enough for me. Listen to the scriptures. In Isaiah chapter 5, the prophet Isaiah, he talks about Israel being a vineyard. And God talks about how he found the very best, most fertile soil and how he planted Israel lovingly in the vineyard. And he wanted grapes. He wanted Israel to bear fruit. And here's what he asks in Isaiah 5 verse 4. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I've not done in it? And when I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? God's saying, what more could I have done for the nation of Israel? Do they struggle? Do they have suffering in their lives? That's part of living in this world. What more could I have done for you that I haven't done? What more could I have given you that I haven't given so that you could be faithful and bear fruit for me? He's asking that question of the nation of Israel, but friends, he's asking that nation, that that question of you and me as well. What more could I have done for you that I've not done? Acts 17, 25, when Paul preached to some philosophers on Mars Hill, one of the things he said is that God gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Every good thing that we have in this world comes from God. The Bible is emphatic about that. Your very life comes from God. What more could he give you? What more could he give me so that I would see his goodness and obey his will? Acts 17, 28, it is in God that we live and move and have our own being. God has given us everything that pertains to life and indeed to godliness. Matthew 5, verse 45, God, even if you're his enemy and don't regard him, God makes his sun to shine and his rain to fall on both the just and the unjust, does he not? He cares for people. He provides for people. And that doesn't mean that people don't suffer in this world, but God gives and blesses again and again and again, regardless of how we choose to regard him or to disregard him. Even his enemies, he blesses. In Psalm 119, verse 105, God has given us his word. And look at what the passage says. Your word, O God, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You ever wake up in the middle of the night and it's really dark and you've got things all over the floor in your living room and you're not wanting to stub your toe? God's word is a lamp in a dark place. As we walk through the living rooms of our lives, as we walk through the dark places in our lives, God's word gives us instruction and illumination. God says, what more could I give you? I gave you instruction. I gave you light. I gave you wisdom. I gave you a lamp to guide you. And best of all, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What more do you want? What more would you ask God for? Romans chapter five, verse eight. He sent his only son to give his life so that you could be with him forever. So that your sin could be taken away so that you could live with him eternally. He took care of the biggest and the most substantial problem that you and I will ever face. He took care of our sin by sending his son Jesus to die for us. What more could God have done that he has not done? 
on the day of judgment, don't say this. God, I lived in the world, and yeah, I sinned, but I, I'll tell you something. The sin that I committed, those temptations were just too strong. They were just too great. The temptations I experienced, they were just so powerful, I couldn't say no. I couldn't turn away. I couldn't stop. Don't say that. Why not? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation, the Bible promises, has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. That's important. God is faithful. That means that God always acts this way. He always makes sure that this, what he's about to say, is the case. It's always true of God that in his providence, he limits what happens to us in temptation. That's what this passage is saying. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you, Christian, may be able to endure it. And what that means, brothers and sisters and friends, is that in every temptation, when you know something is wrong and you're thinking about going through with it anyway, in every temptation, God says, I'm faithful. I will always provide a way of escape. The problem that we have is we don't look for the way of escape. The problem that we have is we look at sin and we think about what that would be like and that possesses us and that consumes our minds and we don't look for the opportunity to say no, to walk away, to turn another direction, to find another solution. But you can't say to God, God, the temptation was too strong for me because this promise reminds us there's no such thing as a temptation that is so strong that you cannot say no to the temptation. First John chapter one, verse nine, suppose you give in to temptation, suppose you do commit sin. The Bible reminds us if we confess our sins as Christians, that God is faithful, there's that word again, he always does this, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we do sin, God, because of Jesus and because of the blood that he shed at the cross, promises every time when we sincerely, penitently confess, he promises, I'll forgive you over and over and over again. But don't try to tell God that the temptations you experienced and the passions that you felt and the desires that you had were just so strong that you couldn't have said no because God says that'll never happen. Don't say this on the day of judgment. God, I lived my life. I was vaguely aware of you. I was hoping that I would get another chance. I just assumed that when we got to judgment day, that there was gonna be a remedial class. I assumed that there was going to be a way for people that didn't make the right decision the first time to make a right decision the second time. I was just hoping that that would be the case with me. I was hoping that you would give that to me. Brothers and sisters and friends, now is the acceptable time, now is the day of salvation. Second Corinthians chapter six, verse two, there is no other time for us to decide how we're going to live before God. Romans five seventeen. 
Because of one man's trespass, talking about Adam, death reigned through that one man, but much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means, brothers and sisters and friends, God has made grace and God has made blessing and gift of salvation. He's made those things available now, right now in Jesus Christ. And now is the time when God wants us to accept that gift into our lives. Now's the time when God wants us to turn to Jesus and put our faith in Him. Now's the time to obey. Don't ever forget the warning of the rich man that died and went to torment. In Luke chapter 16, verse 26, the rich man had asked, can somebody send Lazarus across the gulf and and cool my tongue? And Abraham says this in Luke 16, 26, Between you and me, there's a great gulf, a great chasm that has been fixed. And furthermore, those who want to pass from here to you may not be able, and many, or nobody from there may cross from there to us. What that teaches us is that when we die, brothers and sisters and friends, our fate is sealed. When our spirit leaves our body, James 2.26, when we leave this world, Whatever we've done with our lives, whatever condition we are in at that moment, that seals our eternal fate. There's a great goal fixed. And we can't stand before God on the day of judgment and ask and say, God, I was hoping for a second opportunity. Now is the time for you and for me to look into the scriptures and then look into our own hearts and ask, is my heart right with God? Because on the judgment day, many are going to say some things to Jesus, and many are going to hear the tragic response, I, knew, I never knew you, depart from me. Maybe you need to respond to Jesus and obey the gospel this morning. If so, we can help you do that. If you'd like to respond and ask for prayers, whatever your need, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing.